Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. It is election day, and for many of us who either cover or are involved in politics in one way or another, it's kind of like Christmas Day when Election Day rolls around. Although, with all the early voting that took place certainly in this day, 2.5 million people have already cast ballots. This really is just the final day of voting in Georgia. Uh, Just a quick note. Uh, Because things are fluid right now, because we're interested in knowing how voters are turning out at the polls in person today, we want to look for any kind of disruptions or technical problems that are holding up the vote. We're going to do another live show at 2 this afternoon, and uh, we hope you'll come back and join us uh, for that show as well. And we'll do the same thing tomorrow as votes are continuing to be counted. We'll be live at 9 in the morning and then at 2 in the afternoon. All right. All of that said, let me get right to introducing uh, the panel for today's show. It's Tuesday, which means my partner from the AJC is senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. Tamar, thanks for being here today. We're glad to have you. And you, who have been the reporter when it comes to covering the special grand jury in Fulton County, you've taken a little of the spotlight away from the elections, and we'll talk about that a little later in the show. I don't think it's possible to take attention away from these elections, but let me first say, Bill, it's so cool to get to talk to you and stare at your face in person. We're in the studio together for the first time in two and a half years. It's a pretty amazing moment. There are several of us in the studio today, and for those of you who have been following us on Facebook Live, we are uh, back with video on Facebook Live, but uh, this is a one day election day uh, uh, effort to uh, get everybody to see what's going on here. Stephen Fowler is back with us as well, political reporter for GPB News and the man who oversees Battleground Ballot Box. Hello, Stephen. You've been busy. It's uh, that's an understatement. It's another. I, I do like the way it's the final day of voting in Georgia mm-hmm. for now until probable runoffs. We expect it, uh, it, or we don't. The Secretary of State's office, Gabe Sterling, was on our show Friday said he expects well over 4 million people will have voted by the time this is over. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've seen turnout projections of anywhere from, you know, a million and a half people today, which would be 4 million, to all the way up to 2 million people. So people are out voting in force today. Yeah. Professor Andre Gillespie, who has been with us, well, Andre Gillespie has been one of our longest uh, 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 time uh, panelists on this show, and we are awfully glad that we're lucky enough to have you on on uh, Election Day, Andra, people know you're a professor of political science at Emory University and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute um, for the Study of Race and Difference. Um, and Andra, by the way, we should give you a little plug. Your uh, usual election night duties call for you to be uh, on the set at uh, 11 Live News uh, for people who are in North Georgia. They'll be able to see you again tonight. Yes. So I'm looking forward to being there. Thanks for being here this morning. Rick Dent is back with us. I I think it's safe to say that Rick Dent keeps us more informed on what's happened in the advertising battles throughout this entire campaign than anyone else and has um, just a really, really good handle on what's going on. And Rick, as the show goes on, I'm going to want you to talk a little bit about the spending in the final days of the campaign. In the meantime, thanks for being back with us today. Sure. Uh, Look, you pay your guests. So well for these appearances, I, I'm really here just for the money. Okay. But it's good to be, it's good to be here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you, Mr. Dent. Um, let's start with talking about early voting. And, and tomorrow, I know that on election day, to try to make some sort of assumptions about what the early vote tells us about how things could turn out is um, seems a little bit foolish. Nevertheless. We have seen some patterns in early voting. Uh, Close to 30 percent of the early vote, 29 plus percent of the early vote, has been among black voters. Um, We believe that in the governor's race, Stacey Abrams, well, in in any 
race. The Democratic candidate needs 30 percent of the black vote uh, if they want to win. She's right on the cusp of that, it appears. Yeah, 29.4 percent is the number that I'm seeing on Georgia votes uh, so far with the early vote. And you're absolutely right. That's an encouraging number for Democrats if that holds. On the other hand, the crowd that tends to show up on Election Day has historically tended to be a little more Republican, a little more kind of older, traditional kind of voters. So Democrats are really going to be hoping that they can keep that number at 29 percent or higher. Um, But there's also been some troubling signs for Democrats as well. The youth vote, 18 to 29, has been relatively low, less than 9% of voters so far, and Democrats need them. That's a key constituency for them. And of course, I mean, the the older vote, it's 35% of people, 65% plus, have have come out um, of registered voters. So that's a very encouraging sign for Republicans. Andro, what do you make of looking at the uh, demographics of the early vote? Um, So I was looking at it over the course of the entire election cycle. And one of the things that was really interesting was that that proportion was actually higher in the early days Mm, of early voting. And so I interpret that for African-American voters as saying high propensity black voters showed up and voted early. Then we started to see the proportion shrink and kind of come towards its equilibrium. Um, I would be really worried if uh, that number had fallen to about 27 percent of the electorate. So being at about where the proportion of registered voters is in the state um, is actually a troubling and healthy sign. But what that means is that black voters have to show up to vote today in order for that overall number to reflect their numbers in the electorate. And I think it's also important to point out that uh, while African-Americans are turning out at rates that are roughly commensurate with their uh, with their proportion in the electorate, uh, voter turnout so far amongst Latino and Asian American voters is actually below what their mm-hmm. registration proportions are. Um, and so that is a place where Democrats would be looking to pick up additional voters, um, and they're going to need a, a, a really, really robust turnout um, amongst Asian American and Latino voters as well today. Um, Rick Dent, we have talked an awful lot about how important the black vote is to Stacey Abrams and to Raphael Warnock. Um But I've mentioned on the show a couple of times that the Wall Street Journal's final poll of the campaign um, had an interesting figure in terms of white suburban female voters. There's been a huge swing, according to the Journal's polling, and their polling is really the gold standard, I think, of, of white suburban women away from Democratic candidates in generic congressional balloting toward Republicans. Now, this is national poll. And certainly there are factors, especially as you look at the Warnock-Walker race, um, in terms of how women might feel about Herschel Walker, that might mean those, those numbers wouldn't, wouldn't be replicated here in Georgia. But I wonder what you make of that crucial demographic as well, white suburban women, in, either, in both races. Yes, we've always said all through this year that that was probably going to be the key demographic in Georgia, and that demographic helped Democrats win two years ago. And the question was, was the Trump factor, is he pushed them over to the Democratic side? And the question was, did they really want to be there? And if you remove Trump, like you have right now, would they drift back? And the Wall Street Journal tends to say they're going to drift back. I want to say one thing about the African-American vote. I think it's actually because of the the huge white turnout today, it's probably going to settle about 28%, which is not going to be enough. But but here's what is so wrong about concentrating on the African-American vote. They come out every single election, and they give Democrats 92, 95% of their vote every single election. They are not the problem. They will be blamed, but they are not the problem if Democrats go down today. The problem with Democrats is they don't attract enough white voters. And until they fix that problem, they need to stop blaming African-Americans for losing because African-Americans do their job on election day. Um, Weigh in on this, Stephen. Well, I mean, I, I do think the pers- the proportion of the black vote in Georgia is actually a little higher than what we see on the Secretary of State's uh, data. 
because there are a sizable number of people in Georgia's voter file that are coded as other or unknown for race, that actually we do have a pretty good idea that many of them are in fact black voters. So I talked yesterday with the vice president of L2 Data, it's a political firm that does a lot of voter file data, and they say that actually the black share of the early vote is maybe closer to 32% by their estimates. Of course, there's no way of knowing for sure because it's a lot of people that whenever they register to vote, they self-identified as other or they left something blank, maybe in a historic sense. So I do think the black turnout is actually slightly higher than what we're seeing in some of these raw totals from the Secretary of State's office. But the one thing that has been difficult about covering this midterm election is that the voting behavior of Georgians is different from pre-2020 elections, but also the 2020 election. You know, typically most Georgians vote in the in-person early voting period, a small percentage vote by mail, and the rest on election day. But with the pandemic, so many people voted by mail, and now we're seeing people that voted by mail in 2020 shift back to election day, and some vote to shift to early voting. And so typically there's different groups of people that have voted that we didn't expect to vote and that haven't voted that we did expect to vote. And so really it's going to be interesting to see how voter behavior shifted and who that who they vote for. Which is exactly why I think we should stop talking about what the early vote might tell us about the outcome of the election and turn instead to how this, these campaigns, the top races on the ballot, are closing out. But Tamar, before we get to those uh, conversations about uh, uh, Kemp and Abrams, Warnock and Walker, um, one last note about voting, vote counting. Um, we know that there, the election deniers out there um, since 2020, have always blamed the slow results uh, for their as one of their key reasons why they think elections were rigged. That it took too long. That elections were decided. Trump declared victory on election night in 2020, even though he was advised by his own people not to, because there were still many votes being counted. It was many days before Georgia was able to declare Joe Biden a winner. And so it's the slowness of the vote, which is a natural part of the process that has really played into the election denier scenario. With that in mind, the Secretary of State's office uh, is talking to county election officials and saying, we want to get this vote turned around fast. Gabe Sterling told us on the show Friday that as soon as they get returns in from counties at 7 o'clock, they want to start publishing those findings. And we should also say that by law, uh, the uh, county election offices have got to have their votes counted and into the Secretary of State's office by a day later, by the end of the day on Wednesday. They're really doing everything they can to speed the process up uh, so that there can't be uh, these claims of fraud going on. And traditionally, what we've seen in Georgia elections is especially these massive counties around Atlanta with huge populations have traditionally struggled to get their results in or, or often results aren't coming till closer to midnight, even into the Wednesday after. And that's led to a ton of frustration, especially among Republicans who think, hey, my candidates are doing pretty great as of 8 or 9 p.m. on election night. And all of a sudden overnight, all these mm -hmm. votes come pouring in from Democratic leaning counties. And so about a third of Georgia counties, including Cobb and Fulton, are beginning to count early voting and absentee ballots on election day. They're not allowed to publicly report those results, results until after the polls close, but still, I think that'll give them a huge bump, help them uh, report totals much faster, I believe. And Stephen, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Counties are also required to give the number of the total number of votes cast so that folks know based on the total count, kind of what percentage they're they're waiting on. Yeah, we should know the denominator of roughly all of the total votes cast by about 10 p.m. because we already know how many people voted early. Like, we already know how many people showed up during the three-week early voting period. We already know the maximum number of absentee ballots there are out there because the absentee request window closed. And really, honestly, we're at about 90% of the mail-in ballots have been returned. So all we're waiting on is for election day. When the polls close, the poll managers, they lock everything up and they tell their county, okay, here at Fulton County Precinct 01A, we had 550 voters. And so then they tally them all up. And as they're uploading results and as they're telling people uh, you know, this is what this candidate got. We should know the total universe of how many people voted in Georgia 
earlier than previous elections. All right. Um, all that said, uh, Rick Dent, uh, let me turn to you. I think the race that is on people's minds around the country, uh, as well as here in Georgia, is the U.S. Senate race between uh, Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. And, of course, one of the reasons it's of great national interest is it could uh, be a key factor in determining who controls the U.S. Senate uh, moving forward. And it's very important here, Rick, because it seems to be so close. Uh, Let's talk about the race. You've actually made a prediction about what you see uh, the outcome of that race is going to be. Why don't you give it to us down to the decimal point? <laughs> well, you know, we do our best to try to, to model like a lot of people and then make some guesses on how um, each candidate is going to do with key demographic votes. And then we add it up, and the numbers are the numbers. I, uh, my guess is this. Warnock, 49.38. And Walker, 49.35. I've never seen a prediction like that in my life. It's extraordinary. (laughs) And, Andra, it strikes me, you know, it's a projection, uh, but Rick's been in this game a long time. If he's right, um, one of those two candidates with just the slightest error in terms of polling does have the chance to go over 50%. But it's, of course, just as likely we end up in a uh, runoff. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that that's what it's telling us. It's telling us that the probability of going to a runoff is fairly decent. Um, And so we shouldn't be surprised if it happens, shouldn't be surprised if it doesn't happen. And we also shouldn't be surprised if whoever wins, wins by a razor thin margin. Mm -hmm. That's all the polls could tell us. I mean, it is a margin of error, but what it's basically setting is the end point of a range of possible uh, actual vote percentages that both of these candidates are getting. Um, And so I expect it's going to be within the range that everybody has been talking about um, ahead of time. And nobody should be surprised if, you know, one poll said, uh, you know, Walker was going to be up, but it turns out in real life that Warnock was up or vice versa. Because what all these polls were telling us was that their ranges of possible vote values overlapped and that we couldn't tell you what was going to happen. And that's all I can tell you. Jamar? All of these close races, I think, remind me that these results could hinge on military and overseas ballots. Um, So while officials are doing everything they can to get these tallies in as soon as possible, remember, military and overseas ballots can be returned until the Monday after election. Yeah, that's right. So especially when we're talking about control of the U.S. Senate, uh, even if it doesn't go to a runoff, this could stretch on for, for days up to a week. If this does stretch into a runoff, I, I am very interested to see one of the new changes in SB 202, Georgia's new voting law, is that military and overseas ballots now do rank choice voting for the first time. So should this go to a runoff, they're only going to be voting uh, voting once, and then they'll kind of rank their choices on who they want to see. Okay, that's crucial, Stephen, and, and exp- you've been following this very closely. So what it means is that while the rest of the voting uh, population of Georgia will in fact go back, either voting absentee, early in person, or on runoff day, which is December 6th, those, those late votes, those military votes and others, they will have already cast a ballot based on rank choice, they will essentially have already made their choice in the, in the runoff. Right. You know, federal law requires a certain amount of time for these military and overseas ballots to happen. And because Georgia's runoff is shorter than that, the solution that elections officials uh, have to do because of the legislature is ranked choice instant runoff voting. So there are a relatively small number of people that are military and overseas voters compared to things But what they did is when they got their original ballot, they sent back their general election ballot. And then if there was a runoff in any race that goes to a runoff, they ranked their runoff choices. So if you voted for the libertarian the first time, the libertarian's not making it to a runoff. And so whoever your second choice is, if it's the Democrat or the Republican or leaving it blank, that's how those are counted. We do in the Secretary of State's voter file have about – 6,800 people that are electronic military and overseas voters. Um, So it will be interesting to see if those do, in fact, come into play with these races. But, I mean, just to reiterate what Tamar said, 
Georgia's elections have been close for the past four years, and there's every indication that this is what it's going to be. And so it's going to come down to all of the votes being counted. And people don't like that because they like to go to bed on election night and know who won. Georgia's not a state where that's going to be a possibility for quite some time. So, Andra, let's talk a little bit about how the candidates in that race uh, closed out their campaigns, uh, Warnock and Walker. Uh, Let me start by uh, asking you your take on a couple things that happened with the Walker campaign. Number one, on the day that uh, former President Obama came to town, uh, Herschel Walker was extremely uh, dismissive in the way in which he talked about the former uh, uh, president. Um, I, I don't want to repeat some of the language he used, but he essentially said if the, if Obama came back, down, if Obama were running against me for the Senate down here, I'd beat him in that race for sure. Um, and just that in of itself, I thought, was an interesting choice for a black candidate talking about the first U.S. president who was an African-American Well, he is making that statement based on partisanship. And in 2008, perhaps he actually would have been able to do that. I think given what we know about uh, Barack Obama and how he um, ran, yeah, there are lots of people who obviously didn't vote for him in 2008 or in 2012. And I think Walker thinks that he could coast um, to to victory on that. But I think he's forgetting other factors and, and the kinds of uh, stores of resources and goodwill that would have built up amongst Democrats that would have buoyed uh, that support. So I think he's underestimating the dynamics of the race and just thinking about sort of who has the blue jersey and who has the red jersey and thinking that he could win. It's also, you know, it, it, it's at the end of this campaign cycle bravado. And so, um, you know, I also sort of take that as a bit of trash talking, uh, you know, to use a sports analogy. And so, I, you know, I would kind of dismiss it at that. I, I think he underestimates how formidable a challenger Barack Obama would be, and in some instances, how um, much more skilled Obama would have been against him on a debate stage than Raphael Warnock was. Because um, well, I think there's missed opportunities in that debate. Well, it just seems, Rick Dent, that that a, a black candidate for the U.S. Senate might pay a little bit of uh, respect to the former president of the United States. I understand Andre's point. We are, in fact, at that, that battle stage of the campaign. Uh, but it was interesting to me that he has showed no respect for president, former President Obama whatsoever. Look, it, uh, just to repeat it, it plays well for his team. And um, what the polling has shown us now for the last six, eight years, we are teams now. We are tribes. And as bad as my candidate may be, my nominee may be horrible. At least they're not a Democrat, or at least they're not a Republican. And that's where we are today. And so it makes perfect sense for him to take on Obama, because honestly, I bet it got him votes. Okay. Stephen, on the other side of that race, um, Raphael Warnock has his, we know that his television ads have been very, very hard-hitting. His own ads, the PAC ad supporting him, really gone after uh, Walker on many fronts for a long time now. But on the trail itself, Warnock has behaved more like the pastor that he is. He's tried to run a more positive campaign throughout much of it. I think we saw that in the one face-off they had, the one debate that they had. He did not go on the attack. But in the last week, he's really changed that dynamic and it occurs to me he's gone on the attack because he sees his his internal polling shows him just how close this race really is. Well, absolutely. I mean, it, most of the campaign, Warnock has kind of painted himself more about his accomplishments in office and painted more about, I'll work with anybody so long as it helps Georgia and really trying to appeal to as many people as possible. But you're right, down at this final stretch where every vote is going to count, he's reiterating the stakes. I mean, his Twitter account yesterday uh, posted something, uh, you know, it, it, it just, that reiterates the type of campaign messages shifting. I mean, his Twitter account said yesterday, like, something along the lines of, like, come on, Georgia, like, you can't let Herschel Walker represent my mama in the Senate. And, like, it's a market change in tone where he's reiterating the stakes. There's plenty of money in the message of, I'm a bipartisan senator, I'll do everything to help Georgia. But when it comes down to it on Election Day, he's saying, look, these are the stakes, my opponent is not ready, and 
it's, I think, the effective closing message for him here. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show today. We'll come back with a lot more. I want to talk a little bit more about the ads. And I, I want to, as we do that, turn to talking about the governor's race, where we've seen an unusual um, last week or so uh, move by the Abrams campaign, which has pulled back dramatically on their spending. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the governor's race. We'll talk about down-ballot races and more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back with more on Political Rewind. GPB's Stephen Fowler, the AJC's Tamar Hallerman, Professor Andra Gillespie, and Rick Dent, who I neglected to say, of course, is uh, the vice president of Matrix uh, Communications, a government relations firm. Very quickly, Rick, uh, you've run a lot of campaigns over the years. You've, uh, uh, You've got rituals that in the years past you've honed to. What's a typical day for a political consultant like on election day in your case? Well, for and this is true for the campaign teams themselves uh, or the strategists, not the GLTV. Today is a horrible day for you, and here's why. Number one, there's nothing left for you to do, and you have no role. So as you and I talked before the, the show, James Carville, for example, would go and, and watch movies in the movie theater to get away from it all. Yeah. Um, the second thing is, sitting in that campaign, it's, it's awful on election day because all you hear are bad rumors, most which have no truth whatsoever. Oh, Lord, the black vote's down. Oh, Lord, the white <laughs> vote's up. Uh, Savannah doesn't have electricity. Uh, no voting precinct has opened on time in Fulton. It's just all that crap comes in, and it scares you to death. Yeah. And then finally, uh, we talked about this before, for those who work on campaigns, Today is a funeral day for you, whether you win or lose, because you have come together with a new family and you've created something, a living, breathing entity that only exists in this finite space. And today that entity dies and that family falls apart. Yeah, you know, it's and so, it, go ahead. And so, and so, and so no, no matter whether you win or lose tonight, there's a, there's a kind of uh, melancholy. There's a sadness to it. I, I have to say that as the husband of a playwright and the father of a daughter who works in has worked in New York theater, it's the same thing when a play comes to the end. All of a sudden, that's that right. community that's been together for so long goes their separate ways. And it's a really sad moment. I, I appreciate your comments about that. Andra, um, talk, let's talk about the governor's race. And we're going to add money to the equation in just a minute here. But... We have seen persistent polling that shows Abrams having trouble catching up to Brian Kemp. Lauren Growargo and the uh, campaign, the Abrams campaign, insist that the polling doesn't reflect what voter turnout is actually going to look like um, over the course of early voting and today. But I don't think there's any question uh, to, to uh, saying they have their work cut out for them, Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I totally understand the, the Abrams campaign trying to put a positive spin on things. And after the election, we can look and see whether or not that happens. So one of the big questions is um, it gets uh, increasingly harder once you move away from presidential elections to identify who a likely voter pool is. Different uh, polling organizations have different methods of, of doing that. But, um, uh, you know, it could be that we have underestimated or we have misspecified sort of who we are defining as a likely voter. And that and that may be the difference between winning and losing a race. I doubt that at this point. And so if the demos in the surveys look like the demos in, um, uh, you know, in a you know, in, in, in the actual electorate, that won't lend credence to that argument. We will always have to deal with issues like non-response error, people not answering, um, you know, surveys. So we do know that there is error that is involved there. Um, ultimately, at the end of the day, 
if Stacey Abrams loses, we have to acknowledge some fundamentals about this race that were different from 2018. This isn't an open seat contest. Mm -hmm. She's a Democrat that's running at a time when Democrats are in power nationally um, and they're not popular. Um, and so she has headwinds now that she did not have in 2018. And she's running against an incumbent who has had four years um, more experience of being governor than she has at this particular point. Um, and so all of these reasons made her the underdog, um, even more so than she was in 2018. And she's not going to have the benefit of Donald Trump having said something crazy the day before the election, like your vote is rigged, you shouldn't go vote. So all of these things are actually kind of conspiring to make the job more challenging this time around. If she loses, one of the things that I will be paying attention to is um, the absolute number of votes that she gets. So even if the margin is wider between her and Brian Kemp this time, if she still gets more votes than she got in 2018, that does suggest that the strategy of finding low propensity but likely Democratic voters and trying to get them to turn out to vote is still a sound strategy. And it's one that needs to be deployed. And it's one that can be effective, particularly in races where Republicans are at a disadvantage, which is just not the same. Oh, that's a really interesting observation, Stephen, because I was going to say when you look at, at the polling, uh, it shows Republicans having a lot of success on, on, on races all the way down the ballot. So, But Andres answered the question that I would ask, which would be, is Georgia really turning purple? But it is turning purple, especially if, as Andra points out, Abrams draws more votes this time than she did in 18. Right. I mean, you look at the fundamental coalitions that Democrats have used to build up their electorate and build up their floor higher and higher in these elections. And you look at the electorate that Republicans have. And demographically speaking and politically speaking, the time, uh, the sands of time are shifting more towards Democrats. And so even if Democrats don't prevail in this election year where Democrats are having a rough time nationally, the party in power typically loses, the economy is great in Georgia, and all of these things that are against them in this individual moment, the overall trends that we're seeing is something that Democrats should be happy with, even if they don't win any of these races, especially down ballot. I mean, looking at the voting data, I know going back to early voting data, you know, there are roughly 6% of the people that voted so far are people that didn't vote in 2018, 2020, or 2021. Mm -hmm. Now, not all of those are going to be voting for Democrats and Stacey Abrams, but those people came from somewhere and they came from this record investment in Georgia. And I think what we're seeing is the state of play in Georgia being so competitive benefits Democrats because they're uh, raising their floor electorally where, I mean, probably you wouldn't see very many candidates get below maybe 47 or 48 percent today. All right. Tamar, um, we, we've um, Rick Dent has some. I'll, I'll ask you about this and then, Rick, you should jump in. Rick Dent provided us with some advertising spending figures. And let's just talk about the governor's race right now. Um, in the last week, of this campaign, uh, Rick has told us, the Kemp campaign is spending over $2 million, $2.1 million on ads. The Abrams campaign is spending $355,000. They've cut back their ad buy for the last couple of weeks. Um, and and it, it, it's hard to understand. You can say, well, we're putting our money in GOTV, you get out the vote, but with the massive financial resources they've had. Uh, it's made a lot of people wonder what's going on. Yeah, I think there's a lot of jittery Democrats who are worried. Does that mean that there's a sense of defeat already kind of percolating in the Abrams camp? I'm sure they would tell you, no, that's not the case. But it is kind of staggering. 355000 when you compare that to what Warnock and the Democrats have spent, $13 million. I mean, they've, yeah. they've had plenty of money flow into that race, but still it kind of makes you wonder what the strategy is with um, with Abrams folks. Rick, what's going on there? Uh, I'm not sure anybody really knows. Um, I, I can't recall ever seeing this happen. Now, I assume they're going to make the argument that there's nobody left to persuade. Uh, we've got to move away from persuasion, and now it's about turnout. Mm -hmm. Uh, you can make the argument that they've seen something that they can't persuade people anymore, and they have to go after those low propensity voters. Um, but I, I think, again, and the point was just made, the comparison between the U.S. Senate race and what Democrats are doing, $13 million this week, the last seven days, versus 355000 
in the governor's race. I, God, I hate to second guess, but it's it just, I'm sorry. That does not make sense. Andra? Um, you, know, I, you know, I understand why um, it doesn't make sense and it's jarring. And I think we are used to just trying everything and throwing stuff on the wall and seeing what sticks. On the other hand, if I had a choice with my finite resources and I had to choose between TV and choose between field, I would choose field. Because um, campaign ads don't vote, we tried to sort of assess the effect of uh, campaign advertisements on increasing voter turnout, um, and uh, we can't find it empirically. Um, so at the end of the day, the Abrams campaign may, if they're putting all of their money into field um, and they have fewer resources than Warnock does, right, it makes sense. It may pay off. Um, you know, in some way, shape, or form in terms of actually being able to get additional votes. But there, there is a way where I think money is best deployed by putting it out on the field and making sure that you're knocking on every door because those campaign ads are passive and they don't actually do the same thing that a personal reminder is going to do. Yeah, Stephen, I, I think anybody who uh, somehow underestimates the political intelligence of Stacey Abrams and Lauren Groargo making a terrible mistake. These are very smart political minds. So we have to assume they have a they have some kind of strategy here. It's just hard to see what it might be. Well, and I, I think, too, there's also the possibility that maybe they're pulling back some of the money in anticipation for a potential four-week runoff yeah. when, mm-hmm. I mean, th- that's a possibility. But I, at this point, if you don't know who Stacey Abrams is, and if you don't have an opinion about whether or not you're going to vote for her, I'm not sure an ad of her you know, cooking with her family saying, this is why I believe in one Georgia, is necessarily going to be the thing that you yeah. wake up the final week and see and be like, ah, the 50th time I've seen this. Now's the time I'm going to vote. Versus I do think on the Republican side, one of the things that has been effective is a lot of the ads that Kemp has put out and that Republicans put out are – more about messaging, but the message that they use is more effective to getting people out to vote because it's more fear-based tactics of, you know, what Stacey Abrams is going to do. And we said no to Stacey Abrams versus I think the messaging that Abrams has been putting out in the ads is more of a uh, not necessarily the type of thing to get people to go out and motivate and vote. And I guess one more thing I will say is I think sitting here in Atlanta, sitting here with a lot of the media people based in Atlanta and the consultant class based in Atlanta and this Atlanta-centric view of where the entire state is going, I think is missing a lot of what the Abrams campaign has done this election cycle because they're not focused on the suburban women in Atlanta that are probably going to vote for her or not vote for her. They're focusing a lot more in rural areas. They're focusing a lot more on people that don't normally vote. And I think a lot of their campaign has not been geared towards people like Mm. us understanding what they're doing. It remains to be seen if it is successful, though. Um, All right. Let's talk about Brian Kemp. You were at his uh, final rally up in Kennesaw last night, right? Tell us about the atmospherics, what his message was. Just give us a report about that. Well, uh, it was interesting. They started a half hour late and finished 15 minutes early. It was like speed dating with most of the statewide (laughs) candidates that were there. Uh, I think Brad Raffensperger said, easy to vote, hard to cheat about a dozen times in three minutes. That is the message. (laughs) Speeding through his stump speech. But, I mean, Brian Kemp is campaigning like he is in danger of being the second candidate to make it into this runoff. And that's how his campaign in 2018. That's how he's campaigned now. They are not letting their foot off of the gas. And they're telling people, do not pay attention to the polls. He's not underestimating Stacey Abrams. He's not underestimating Republicans maybe not showing up on Election Day in the same way they have in the past. And so his message of obviously he's touting his economic message and COVID and stopping Stacey and things like that. But he really is hitting we need to get out and vote like we've never voted before really hard. And that's what you saw. He did a fly around to multiple major areas of the state because they need every single person to show up and vote today. Yeah, um, his campaign has been extraordinarily disciplined, uh, uh, Tamar. Um, But we should also point out that uh, Herschel Walker finished his uh, campaign, his last big event, uh, at an event uh, fairly close to where Brian Kemp was. (laughs) The two of them never came together. Kemp says, don't you're making too much about of that. It's, you know, divide and conquer, that sort of thing. And yet we know that both of them have had their reasons for keeping some distance from one another throughout this election campaign. And one of the big reasons, Donald Trump. 
Uh, he, of, who, of course, endorsed Herschel Walker, vowed to kill the candidacy of, of Brian Kemp. Um, and, and I think that has helped, you know, Kemp has has walked a very careful line where he doesn't want to alienate those Trump voters, but he also, you know, doesn't want to alienate perhaps those independent voters who hated Donald Trump but were still inclined to vote for Kemp anyway. Whereas Herschel, you know, doesn't want to put too much daylight there. So that that makes sense to me. And speaking to what um you know, to what Stephen was talking about, how Kemp is running as if there's no tomorrow and not taking his foot off the gas. I think that's super important for him because both him and Abrams want to make sure that their folks don't get disenchanted or think that their votes aren't needed. For Brian Kemp, if his folks don't show up, that could mean potentially a runoff with Stacey Abrams and a month more of campaigning if he falls just under that 50 percent benchmark. For Stacey Abrams, that could mean she's out of the race entirely. Yeah. Rick Dent, I got to get to a break, but there was a Republican candidate for governor in this state a while back. His name was Guy Milner. He won the Republican primary and then was going up against Zell Miller, and he took his foot off the gas after the primary. He didn't go on TV and spend money to make sure people knew who he was, and he got beaten pretty badly because he took his foot off the gas. The Kemp people know better. Oh, absolutely. And look, I lost the governor's race where my candidate decided to take his foot off the, uh, off the, um, the gas in the last three days because he thought he was going to lose. And uh, he didn't want to go out that way, as he said. And uh, we lost by less than a point. Ooh, ooh. All right. So, oh, sorry, I got to get to a final break of the show. We'll be back with more in a minute. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Andrew Gillespie, uh, we know that uh, the control of the Senate is up for grabs tonight, and we know we're watching here in Georgia, Walker Warnock in Pennsylvania, uh, Oz against Fetterman in Ohio, J.D. Vance against Tim Ryan. Uh, Those races are going to be in the spotlight uh, tonight. Um, The Arizona governor's race, the Democrat Katie Hobbs, Secretary of State, against the TV personality Carrie Lake, another one that's going to tell us a lot about the future of the party. But because you're from Virginia, I want to ask you about a very important congressional race, Elaine Luria, um, who was on the January 6th committee, uh, a Democrat who's had that seat, and it looks like she could be in trouble tonight. What does it tell us? If she loses about we know the House is likely to go Republican, but why is that race so important? Well, uh, you know, people like Lane Luria are um, moderate Democrats. And where we see partisan control shifting, the most vulnerable candidates are the ones who uh, are the moderates. It's not the extremists who lose in these elections. It's usually the moderates who are sifted out of office. And so Luria is in a competitive district, heavily military, um, and she's facing a strong Republican challenge. Um, her closing argument was basically she's going to stand on principle. And she basically was like, you know, if you you know believe in the election lie, if you're looking for a candidate who um, is taking opinions that you know sharply differ from mine, this is I'm not the right candidate for you. And so she's going out on her own terms if it turns out that she loses. But I think it's important for us to point out that, you know, because of polarization, what we have is the shrinking middle. There aren't moderates anymore. We don't have liberal Republicans. We don't have conservative Democrats. And so the ones who tend to be the most vulnerable are usually the ones who are kind of, in some instances, the most reasonable people. And that's an, an unfortunate consequence of the fact that all the liberals have flocked to one party and all of the conservatives have have flocked to um, to another uh, to the other party. So um, I think you know we need to think about that. I mean I think there's going to be some narrative about uh, you know whether or not there was a cost for being a part of the January 6th committee. The committee, you know, we know that Liz Cheney lost. Um, we know that there were people who were on the committee who had made the decision to not run for office because they knew that they were likely to lose. So people like Adam Kinzinger on the Republican side, Mm -hmm. and then also Stephanie Murphy um, on the Democratic side, who when she was elected was considered a rising star in Democratic politics. 
And I think we're going to have to reckon with ourselves whether or not our partisanship should be so calcified that we're actually losing um, reasonable people who are actually seeking to work together and work across the aisle with folks just for the sake of making sure that we have partisan wins. Yeah, that's a great point. Rick Dent, if Mehmet Oz, J.D. Vance uh, win their Senate races, if Kerry Lake becomes the governor of Arizona, I guess Don, Dan, Dan Bolduck was uh, also, these are all people who were endorsed by Trump. I think Dan Bolduck in, in New Hampshire, too, was endorsed by Trump. If all those candidates uh, who Trump endorsed win, what does that tell us about what kind of strength Trump has when he announces his candidacy for president in about a week? You know, you've heard me say before, he, he's like the character in the Halloween movies. <laughs> you know, you kill him, you kill him, you kill him, and he sits back up and here he comes again. Um, there's there's a firm that we work closely with, um, that have a, a lot of the big uh, uh, corporate clients in America, and they put out a newsletter last night predicting a red wave. But here's what they say: election night may mean for corporate America that they better hold on because moderation will be gone after election day, and that. Corporate America is going to now be attacked by both parties, the populism strain from the right wing and the progressive strain Mm -hmm. from the Democratic side, and that the next few years are going to be very difficult politically for corporate America. I think that's what the the Trump uh, message is right now. Uh, Stephen Fowler, as long as we're talking about Donald Trump, he made it very clear last night. He announced that next Tuesday he's going to have a very important announcement at Mar-a-Lago, we imagine it's a, uh, it's an announcement that he's running for president again in 2024. So we have talked about it in this show how the absence of Trump may be helping Repub- somebody like a uh, well any of the Republican candidates on the ticket really. Uh, but if Trump announces and we have a runoff for that Senate race, what exactly might that mean for the chances of Herschel Walker? Chaos. Uh, Absolute (laughs) chaos. I mean, imagine a world where it's already a four-week runoff. There's fewer early voting days. There's fewer chances to get an absentee ballot. Millions are being poured in because Georgia is one of a very small few states that has runoffs. Donald Trump announces he runs for 2024, and one of the states that he wants to visit on his announcement tour is Georgia, where he has a rally for Herschel Walker. You know, these are things that could be possible, and if it's a runoff, it could help rally the faithful to show up in a way that they didn't do in the 2021 Senate runoff. On the other hand, it gives Raphael Warnock a very, very strong message to say, look, you didn't put me over the top the first time. This is what could happen if you don't put me over the top this time. So I think it's going to be just, uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But if there is a runoff, but if there is a runoff, Trump's presence is going to loom way larger than it has in the last two years here. Um, I want to get to two other very quick subjects. Rick Dent, very quickly, when we talk about how we have become more tribal than ever, where politics is as toxic as it is, you shared with me an ad, I think it must have been a digital ad, that Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, put up, in which she literally, not not in some vague way, she literally accuses the president of the United States, Joe Biden, of being a pedophile. If I don't know. It's so obscene, it's hard to understand what the heck is happening to... I sent a note back to you. You said, what is happening to our country, Rick? Yeah, I think the key is, it was not nuanced. It was, he's a pedophile. But you know what? Here's the sad part about it. It probably got her votes. Mm. All right. It, we're going to have to at some point do a longer uh, conversation post-election about this because people have said to me, don't talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene. You're giving her attention. The fact of the matter is she's in line to be in a leadership position if Republicans take the House. Right. Maybe not a formal leadership position, well, but given the fundraising, yes. you know, prowess that she has, Kevin McCarthy cannot ignore she her. She will have Kevin McCarthy's ear. Thank you for correcting that. Real quickly, uh, special grand jury, Newt Gingrich has been called to testify, and 
He's put his foot down. Newt says, I'm not going to go before them. And he's asking a court in Virginia. Fairfax County, Virginia. To to, uh, uh, say he doesn't have to go, right? Yeah, he's making two arguments. The first, that he's already agreed to testify before the January 6th committee. And why can't Fulton prosecutors just take the transcript of the January 6th interview and use that? I don't necessarily think that's going to fly. He's also making a technical argument about the way that different states honor subpoenas Mm -hmm. from elsewhere. It's something that's been used successfully by a witness in in Texas. It's something we've seen from other witnesses in this special grand jury investigation. Mark Meadows tried to use it unsuccessfully. We'll see if a Fairfax County judge buys it on Wednesday morning. It's an interesting argument. The argument is that because they cannot uh, bring an indictment, this special grand jury, they're not, it's not a criminal investigation, it's civil, and therefore states don't have to honor subpoenas. But in fact, Robert McBurney himself, the judge, has said, no, no, this is a criminal investigation. So we'll see how that uh, all plays out tomorrow. Um, but Gingrich is, has been called because he actually recommended, as I read in your article today, that um, that former President Trump should put TV ads on the air in Georgia uh, calling the election here uh, fraudulent. He was a supporter of the fake elector uh, 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 scheme as well. So he's an important part of all this. Absolutely. And as we know, the fake elector scheme, one of about six batches of uh, incidents that the special grand jury is interested in. All right. We are out of time for this morning's show. Tamar Hellerman, thank you so much. Stephen Fowler, glad to have you with us. Rick Dent, thank you for all you've given us throughout this campaign season in terms of our understanding of the advertising. And Andre Gillespie, I hope you're going to have a great night. You're sitting on the anchor desk tonight at 11 Alive, Andre? I'm not anchoring, but I'll be there to provide analysis. That's very exciting. I've got to say that sitting alongside the anchors on election night always made me really, really feel like um, I was a big part of election night coverage. So I'm glad you're doing it tonight at 11 Live. Stephen Fowler, where will you be tonight? Raphael Warnock's watch party. And where is it? Well, maybe we shouldn't talk about that on the air. I apologize for that. So you'll be we'll be able to see reports from you uh, overnight and tomorrow from the Warnock campaign. We actually have four reporters at the top four watch parties, so you'll have lots of reports. Oh, good, good, good. That's So that's GPB News, whether it's the radio, digital, any way you can get us, you'll be able to hear it. Also, by the way, uh, Peter Biello, our All Things Considered host, tonight at 7 o'clock is going to do an hour uh, about uh, how the election has gone, how turnout was throughout the day today. The polls will be closed by that point. So uh, try to tune in to hear Peter at 7 on GPB News. That's it for our show today. We're completely out of time. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll be back at 2 this afternoon with a live show. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy. If you haven't voted, go do it before our 2 o'clock show. See you all then. Bye-bye.